There's a moral case for LGBT equality, and there's a human rights case for LGBT equality. But did you know that there's an economic case for it? And the economic case may be the strongest argument we have in today's environment. That's why we're excited to host MV Lee Badgett on Queer Money episode 223 to talk about her book, The Economic Case for LGBT Equality. It's an informative and powerful episode, so let's get into it. But listen to the end to see how you could possibly win a copy of Lee's book. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So welcome, Lee Badgett, to the Queer Money Podcast. I can't tell you how excited we are to have you. I feel like we're, Dave and I are fangirling right now. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> that's as great all, to be here. <laughs> right. As all of you know, John and I love numbers, and Lee has provided us with a wealth of of information as well as numbers. So we dove deep into this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our messages align so well. And the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, David, she articulates it a lot better than we can. <laughs> so we need to have her on the show. So we want to thank you so much for making time in your schedule and, and coming on, on the show. We appreciate that. So to get the conversation kicked off, I'm curious, what made you think it was a uh, why did you think it was important to create an economic case for LGBTQ equality, as opposed to maybe focusing more on the human rights or the moral cases for LGBTQ equality? It's been around for a while, the idea of an economic case for equality. If you go back to the 60s, you can see people making that very argument in terms of the civil rights movement and pushing for uh, civil rights protections. We, we've heard some of this in lots of contexts around gender and women in the economy. And uh, I have to say, it didn't really fully emerge for me until I had been working for a while in the United States on different issues of LGBT rights. So in the context of things like marriage equality, economic claims started to be made about what would happen if same-sex couples could get married. And so, for example... We talked about the rights. This was an important thing for why couples should have the right to marry and the rights and benefits that sometimes go along with it, you know, were part of that argument. But then some state legislators started saying, uh -huh, well, if there are all these rights and benefits, that's going to be expensive. So we cannot afford to let same-sex couples get married because we'll just, our budgets will, you know, go crazy and blah, blah, blah. I remember so that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So like, okay, I can, I can answer that question as an economist. I can go make estimates and so my Williams Institute colleagues and I did a lot of studies that showed that actually state budgets would be better off if more people got married, if same-sex couples could get married. And then we started thinking about this from the perspective of businesses. If they provide benefits for spouses, is this going to be bad for them in some way? And already there was a well-established business case for equality. Businesses said, we know we need to treat our LGBT employees fairly because we want to attract the best workers. We want to retain the best workers. We want people to be as productive as they can be. So, you know, hearing it in that context, it wasn't, it was not a huge step to kind of put that together and to talk about it from a broad economic perspective. But I didn't really do it until 
2014, I got asked by some folks at the World Bank to estimate the cost of homophobia and transphobia in India, which is a country they had an interest in. I tried to think about how could we estimate that and looking at differences in health, looking at some differences in, in labor force opportunities, I was able to come up with at least a rough estimate that it would be as much as 1% of their GDP lost because of homophobia and transphobia. So, so that sort of pulled me into talking a lot about that in different parts of the world. And I wrote that book because I was talking about it so much one day, I was about to go on stage at a development bank to talk about it. And I I need to write this down. <laughs> then I won't have to say it over and over and over again. <laughs> People can read it, you know. So, so uh, yeah. So that's that's how the book was born, actually. Gotcha. And then now you have a series of people inviting you onto their podcast and their TV shows to talk about the book that you wrote so you don't have to keep repeating the argument. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's right. There's you, you can never not repeat things. I mean, and that's right. that's a, that's good though. I mean, I, I'm a teacher. I know that's how people learn. You have you have to hear things a lot of times before it exactly. really sinks in sometimes. Yeah. So we're gonna dive into some some more of that. So I kind of want to take a, a little bit of a, a step back. So you, you make a case early on in the book about minority stress. That's the result of experiencing stigma in the workplace. And that research has shown how harmful that is to people's physical and mental health. And not just LGBTQ people, but all people. So I'm curious, how does minority stress for all minorities, all marginalized communities affect minority workers, businesses, and then ultimately the economy? It's it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Again, my colleague at the Williams Institute, Elon Meyer, has done a lot of work on this for LGBT people. But as you said, it's, it's, this is not limited to LGBT people. Health is one of the most important forms of what economists call human capital. I mean, that sounds a little strange, so I just want to explain it for a second. The idea is that there are certain kinds of skills and knowledge and abilities that we have that, that don't go away. We don't use them up. You know, I come to work today. I'm the same person tomorrow. I haven't used anything up. It's the same brain, you know, working on things. And uh, so that's why we think about it as capital. It, it sticks around. But health and health is something like that. So if you're ill, you can't, you might not be able to work at all. You might only work at a lower level of productivity. I mean, think about if you've, for the millions of people who've had COVID, for example, you know, they've, they've had to take time off from work and stay home. And, you know, this, the, the pandemic shows us just how important that loss of, of good health is and how devastating it can be for our economies. So we know that that's very important. And without good health, people just will not be performing at their best in their jobs. They won't be able to keep learning and doing their jobs better. So all of these you know, from whatever the source, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, whatever the source, it's likely to have the same sort of effect. I mean, I, I, I take a step back sometimes and I think, you know, I'm just focusing on the LGBT side. But, you know, if we looked at all of these different forms of, of oppression and poor treatment of people, it, we're so underperforming as a society, as, a, as a, an economy we would be all so much better off if there were more equity in all those different realms. So yeah, it's a big problem. Right. Absolutely. I, I think that one of the things that probably is very apparent in what you're talking about, and we are finally, you know, there's so much more discussion about it today, and that is the mental health side of it, right? Productivity is oftentimes affected by that mental health part. You're still showing up to work, but if you're operating at 85 
75, 65% because you're constantly distracted by something, well, then that's not only hurting you, your performance, but it's hurting your employer, but they may not be aware of it to the degree that you are yourself, right? And so they may not think that it's actually happening or, or may, may be able to, to let it pass, right? Mm-hmm. When it really shouldn't be passing. Yeah, that's a great point. Definitely. It's not always visible. You know, people aren't always sneezing and coughing, you know, and you know that they're not feeling well. But, and we know that some of these health disparities are related to mental health. When you look at the stats, it doesn't look good. We have higher LGBT people have higher rates of anxiety and depression, higher rates of substance use. You know, so on the mental health side, it, it is devastating. And, and I think that's really reflects the kind of the kind of uncertainty that people still face, even as things get better, we, we carry the past in our bodies, you know, for mm-hmm. one thing. And there's still, there's still a lot of variation in treatment around how LGBT people are treated by their families, by their neighbors and their coworkers. And, you know, the, the, you know, the, the microaggressions that people have heard a lot about are also present for LGBT people and added together, it can, it can still be really devastating for people. Absolutely. And unfortunately, for the sake of time, early on in your book, you talk a lot about uh, LGBTQ, homophobia, transphobia in education, as well as in healthcare, and how all of that can affect people's productivity down the line. Um, we won't, for the sake of time, we can't really dive into all of that, but it does have an exponential effect on productivity, even 10, 20, 30 years later, when someone's finally adult in the workforce, they're still, as you say, carrying all that with them into the workplace and that's affecting their day-to-day life as adults. That's right. That's right. Having lower levels of education, poor quality of education, that feeds back on the mental health stuff that we Mm -hmm. were just talking about, those outcomes. And it means people are arriving at the workplace without the same kind of preparation and skills that they're capable of. So it's a loss on many counts. When we interviewed Jay Allen on the very first podcast episode of Queer Money, and Jay was the former SVP of Charles Schwab, and he talked about, he's, he was an out gay man when, when he was in the executive leadership position. And he talked about how his biggest goal was to try to get his all the employees to bring 100% of themselves to work, regardless of their sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever their background is. And I think it's very interesting, especially as you bring up the mental health, the fact that we're talking more about mental health these days. Deloitte University Leadership Center for Inclusion reported in 2015, and I think there have been a couple of studies since this came out, but that 61% of U.S. workers, including 45% of straight white men, are hiding something about themselves at work. And to Jay's argument, that's that that means they're not able to bring their full selves to work, and that's hurting the company bottom line, productivity, all of that. With that, do you think that businesses are doing enough to create safe and inclusive work environments for all people, especially LGBTQ people? Yeah, that's a big question. I think We've certainly seen a lot of changes in policies by, by big companies, which is a very important start. There's more inclusion of LGBT issues and, say, diversity training. There's more discussion about it very openly, better policies, non-discrimination policies. So I, I think there's definitely movement in the right direction. The big question is, how much does it get at that, that kind of underlying culture that people are working in that is... Mm-hmm seems to not be very supportive. That's a pretty stunning statistic, actually, I think. The, you know, more than half of people don't, don't feel accepted. That uh, a, loss, a legal scholar at NYU, Kenji Yoshino, I don't know if you've had him on, on your show or not. He's 
written a book called Covering a while back now that makes the same kind of case that we think of, of hiding and trying to be invisible as LGBT people is just us, but it's really not. There are all sorts of ways that people have to toe the line of the, of the norm. So it's hard to know how well companies are doing in terms of that larger, that larger picture. That statistic suggests there's still a long way to go for everybody, not just for LGBT people. I think back to just kind of the time frame when John and I were at Schwab, we were pushing for Schwab to have literature that showed people from the LGBT community uh, as a part of the marketing material that advisors would use when they would go out and speak to their LGBT clients. We literally had advisors asking for this. And when Schwab marketing and D&I came back to us and said, no, we're not going to do that. We don't want to do that. We, at first of all, it was kind of odd for us to hear it from D&I, but we, we kind of knew that the culture of the company had started to go more conservative. Literally, both John and I said to ourselves, I, I don't know if we have a future at this company anymore. And I think that our pro- I know personally, my productivity in part started to decline because started, I started to think about where should I go? Where should I go where we, where we feel accepted and we can encourage our company to be more supportive of the people in their community that they're serving? And I think that a lot of companies, uh, there, there are probably a lot of people who are sitting in their companies saying to themselves, I just don't know if my company supports me. And that carries them into a place of, I don't know if I can give 100% if my company doesn't want to give 100% back to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. If then the more people like that, the worse off that company is, and they may never realize it. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'm. This really makes me think of. Well, this happening. It's more pervasive, I think, than than we've talked about a whole lot. But everything that's going on to Disney, Disney right now, and the LGBTQ employees there who weren't happy, aren't happy that their leadership didn't come out more forcefully against the anti the Don't Say Gay bill. And um, do you, I'm wondering to what extent are is the community, including those, especially those people who are working in corporate America, those Fortune 500 companies, are they starting? I wonder if they're starting to feel that oh, my company is speaking out of both sides of its mouth. They they have this DNI program, they have these BRGs to support me. They give us two hundred fifty dollars a year to to sponsor Pride or whatever whatever they can seem to afford. Throw some bones. Yeah. But then I know they're also at the same time they're giving money to politicians who I know and they know aren't supporting me in the long run. So I wonder if, if if that's also having an effect on people's productivity, knowing I know that my, my company is speaking out of both sides of its mouth, but I also need to put food on my table. Right, right. That's the trade-off. Yeah. I mean, I think companies are relying on that, that second pressure on, on employees far too much, right? Yeah. To assume that having a job is the only thing that they care about. Having the paycheck is all that matters. And that is not the case, clearly. Yeah, I think the situation that you've just outlined reveals a couple of really important things. Number one, companies might have done really well in the past, but you know, it's it, you don't get to rest on those laurels. You have to keep performing, keep being inclusive, keep pushing out on on inclusion. And I think that was the shocking thing about Disney in many ways. They used to they used to be much more out there, and then, and then something happened, and they seemed to have pulled back and then realized that that was people do notice those things. Their employees notice those things. So, yeah. uh, you know, the responsiveness to employees, I think will be interesting to see, especially around the political contributions people know. And there's been a lot of backlash against companies over the last few years about those kinds of contributions. So it may be, who knows, maybe we will see some retreat from as active 
participation in, in that kind of part, that particular part of our political process. I'm not maybe sure. companies will say we're not going to donate to anybody. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. <laughs> you never know. You never know. But they, but you know, companies like to do both. I mean, they like to hedge their bets. So. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so it's not really clear that it reflects a real strong opinion on their parts as much as being you know, protective of their interests in some way, no matter who's in charge. So you can, you can kind of understand that on one level, but on another level, say, you know, then you, you really are not supporting me if you are supporting these people who are pushing this other agenda. So it's something, and I do think too, that the other thing, the, the authenticity, the intent, of companies is being challenged. I mean, mm-hmm. pinkwashing is now the worst label. All of my students talk about this. They are very, they're very skeptical about corporations and the sincerity of their efforts. They really, they think that a lot of it is pinkwashing in many cases. So I think that's a bad sign for employers. It's going to make it a lot harder for them to, to really convince their employees and their customers that they are sincere. But it, do, it does seem like companies are benefiting when they are doing some of this, right? We've, we've seen that companies even you you mentioned this in your book that that companies that are out there whether it's policies or what they're doing in the community or the organizations that they're supporting or the politicians that they're supporting it does look like they are benefiting financially from this because i think it what, what you said oh no it was it was right it was credit suisse said that the stock prices of 270 companies that with open lgbt senior management had outperformed similar companies in their industry it does kind of beg the question though is it is it the support of the lgbt community that is causing that or is there something different about those companies that's the big question, actually, you know, and, and I can tell you my building is full of people who think about that question nonstop, you know, showing, you know, which way that goes, what the, you know, the causal path is, is hard. It's hard in academia. And the way there have been other studies, in addition to that internal Credit Suisse one, that have tried to do the same thing. And basically the idea is they're asking, we can see companies that are doing well. So that are adding protections when they when they add them compared to how they were doing in the past are they doing better so that gets a lot closer to being able to assert that it's not just something about them because that was true two years before you know there they added domestic partner benefits or gender affirmation benefits to their health care plan and now we see them doing better so so i think that suggests that it's it's probably both there probably are some companies that are more likely to do all of those things and there are some companies who are who, who think about them for a long time, consider them for a long time, and then do them, and then they get those financial rewards. But yeah, yeah, we see financial rewards, not just stock prices, but higher profits, higher productivity, attracting more creative employees. There are studies that support all of those different pathways. So, so that's right. So businesses are getting something positive out of it, and, uh, but, but they also are going to have people that they're sincere to get that benefit. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. I know we had Todd Sears on the podcast. Actually, we've had him on twice, and and he talked about the return on a, what he calls the return on equality, and 
John and I were chatting before we jumped into this interview about the whole idea of are these companies, is the culture of that company more open to and maybe innovation or differences in thought and all of that is what's helping folks versus companies that are considered to be traditionally more rigid, less open to innovation. Those kinds of companies are the ones that aren't seeing the benefit because they're not actually providing that kind of support or or being open to their employees. Yes, that's possible. That's possible. I mean, it makes a lot of sense and it's consistent with those broader kinds of measures that I was talking about. It's complicated though. And I think it's important to respect those complications, but they help us point, help point us towards ways that we can do this better. So there've been many studies about diversity of different kinds and the people who are in those fields looking at race and gender diversity of of workplaces, you know, they say, well, there's at least the potential for that diversity to lead to more creativity, more new ideas and innovations, different things emerging because you have different people in the room. But there's another side of diversity, and that is that it can sometimes make things harder. You know, if people don't don't understand each other, don't understand where each other's coming from, or if, uh, you know, in some cases there can be outright conflict sometimes in more diverse workplaces. So you have to figure out how to harness the good side of diversity. And a lot of that is going to be through management practices that are going to, to help help get the company going in the right direction, not the, not the wrong direction with regard to diversity. So, so it won't happen on its own, but it does take people who are conscious of it. I think it's probably most likely it takes people who are, who are very sincere. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure Todd would, would attest to this as well. I mean, I've talked to people in big corporations who sound more dedicated than many activists that I know. I mean, it's quite, it's quite impressive. There are people who really genuinely want to do the right thing in these big companies. And if they are, if they're smart strategic thinkers, they can make huge changes, you know? So, uh, so yeah, so it is very important on all those different levels to have that kind of diversity, but to have a company that's going to use it in the right way. Yeah. You do bring up a good point. I think we talk about inclusion, 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 just thinking that it's going to be the panacea for everything. But there are some challenges that you do have to, to balance. And as an as executive, you're responsible for, for balancing that appropriately for your, all your employees, um, but as well as for your shareholders and, and people that you're accountable to. And it's not always as, as easy as we might want it to be. And going kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier with health and mental health and I think, I can't remember who it was that we had on the podcast. Maybe it was Todd again. When we were talking about this, the idea that if I see someone, my company is respecting someone else and they're making policies and bringing inclusion in for those people, I actually feel more included myself that my company isn't just siloed and thinking about one small, narrow group of people that that can maybe give people a boost to their loyalty, a boost to their dedication, a boost to their feeling included. I think it was Gallup used to have a question, do you have 
they had a survey question in the workplace trying to de- define whether or not employees liked their workplace. And one of their questions was, do you have a best friend at work? Right. Well, it's kind of almost similar to that, where you're kind of feeling like I feel like a part of something. I feel like I'm a part of this. And if I feel like I'm a part of something, I want to see it succeed. Maybe that is what's happening here is we're seeing a boost in productivity because people feel like they are a part of something that their company is loyal to them. I hope so. I hope that that's what people are are, are feeling. And I think, I, I, yeah, I think if companies can demonstrate that they're they're seeing their employees, I mean, they're really seeing them, who they are in whatever kinds of position they are in, I think that can be very powerful. I still worry about it though. You know, I think, you know, we're seeing all this backlash of, it's critical race theory, you know, I'm not sure everybody really even knows what that is, but, uh, but, you know, or diversity trainings, you know, Donald Trump, when he was president, signed an executive order saying there, you know, you can't really have diversity trainings anymore, not those that have certain kinds of characteristics. And I think, uh, you know, it suggests that there, yeah, there's something going on. We're still, we're, we're kind of coming back to what I think, think is a point that we thought maybe we had gotten beyond. And I'm not sure exactly what that means, but there are uh, clearly some people who are, uh, I think, you know, not feeling included. And we may have, speaking for myself, maybe some different political values than those folks do, or different political opinions. Um, but, you know, somehow or other, we have to come back to figure out what it is that we have in common in many ways. And I think in a workplace, you have you have something to work with there, so to speak. You know, you've got the the mission of the employer, the things that we're doing together, and you know, hopefully that can be a unifying perspective. But yeah, I, I guess I I am personally kind of not as optimistic about that view that we will all feel more included if somebody else feels included, because it doesn't seem to always work that way. But it's it's something we need to go back in and start maybe thinking about it in a new way, given what's been happening. Yeah. You bring up a great point. You know, Dave and I always get a little bit tenure, a little stressful when there's a Democrat in the White House, because it seems like things become a little bit more sneaky. And then all the things, everybody goes to the states and they try to make changes at the state level. Whereas when there's a Republican in the White House, they're a little bit more bold and brash and you can actually see what's going on a little bit more readily than, mm-hmm. you know, because we're all separated in our different states, right? So, but you bring up a good point. And I think that's why your, your, your book is brilliant because I think regardless of what your political views are, we all want to see the GDP grow. We all want to see our company perform better, whether we're private or public. We all want to, who all, especially those of us who are investing in the stock market, want to see our, our stock prices go up so we can all hopefully retire at a reasonable age. We interviewed Dominic Barton of McKinsey several years ago for an article we wrote for Forbes He's not working at McKinsey anymore, but he told us, and I thought it was pretty profound. He said, any, any executive who cares about bottom line growth needs to be concerned about inclusion. And so I wonder if maybe to the extent that you can, we can, anybody in the community can, is now the time to really make the economic case for LGBT equality. Like we can all agree that we need inflation to drop and the GDP to go up, right? So let's all maybe, maybe do what we need to do to make that happen. Is is now maybe a right time to have that argument? Absolutely. I think coming back from the kind of economic crisis that we experienced in the pandemic, you know, we see how we we're all tied together. Our fates are all tied in many ways. You know, we, you know, some people have more resources than others to weather tough times, but, you know, but everybody felt that. And 
And now, as we see this moment where the economy is heating up to the point where there are many job openings, I mean, we've got inflation going on, but we've also got situations where, you know, customer service isn't where what it was because they, our favorite restaurants and our shops can't hire people to actually come in and, and do, do that work. So, you know, it's a different kind of quality of life measure. In the past, these kinds of moments have been really helpful down inequalities in some ways, because it means that employers have to look a little bit harder. They don't have all the, the usual suspects lined up at the door to come in and work for them. So maybe they have to show that they're different. They're more inclusive of people of different sexual orientations or gender identities or races or whatever. And they are they may have to hire people that they wouldn't have prioritized in the past. And so we, we saw that like in the 1960s is a great example. That's really one of the few times that we saw big jumps in moving towards racial equality, for example, or in the 70s for women and gender equality. So, you know, this could be that moment where the, there is some breaking down of discrimination and that, you know, those implicit or very explicit biases that people sometimes have. So that's what I would look for as a silver lining, I think, mm-hmm. right now. And it's it, and it fits exactly in what you were just saying, that we, you know, we all want to see things, see the economy do well, because we all depend on it one way or another. And that's about, in the end, in my view, you know, it's about using everybody's capacity to its fullest and take the talents and the knowledge that people have. Yeah. I mean, you said in your book that usually in tough times that the LGBTQ community shows its resiliency. Do do you think that's happening? Do you see that resiliency right now? I think people are working really hard to stay resilient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God, the COVID, these two years have been really tough on people and on families and with kids, without kids. So, so it's been tough. I think everybody's had to, to be resilient. You know, right now I think, uh, you know, this current political moment with all these anti-trans bills being passed in different places. I think, you know, transgender people, I, I hear them struggling, you know, to, to stay positive, to see, you know, the potential for change in the future, even when things are tough right now. And I think that's the, the value of resilience in many ways. And hopefully, you know, some of the good things that have happened in the not too recent, not too distant past will kind of help us remember that, you know, things are, things go up and down and, Things can get better in the future just because they look a little bleak now. You know, that doesn't mean it will always be that way. So, sorry. I mean, this is like my, my, my natural optimism coming out. <laughs> I guess, you know, it's a kind of interesting. In the distant past, there was a lot of flight away from red states, away from places where people felt that they couldn't be there because literally they did feel alone because there weren't communities, right? You know, I, th- I think there are so many, even today, there are so many small towns or small cities that don't have LGBT centers, although the internet uh, has made it much more, it's much easier to find your community. But I'm curious if you think when we're talking about these all these things that are happening at the state level right now, if you think we're going to see another flight out of these states, it, or maybe it increase again, and does that have an economic impact on those states, those towns, and the businesses that are there? It could have a big impact, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That ability of people to move around 
is it's a good question. We have lots of people who've said, you know, exactly that, that, you know, I felt like I had to leave this small town, this small rural town, this, this unaccepting state and go somewhere that's more accepting. And we also hear businesses saying the same thing, actually. You probably remember when North Carolina passed the anti-trans bill a few years back, you know, there's this huge backlash against it. And, you know, Deutsche Bank and who else was it? PayPal, I believe, you know, was, mm-hmm. they, these were places that were, were going to expand into North Carolina or expand existing sites. And they decided not to, you know, Bruce Springsteen canceled his concerts. They, That's right. This is really hard. For, I'm from North Carolina. So I can tell you, this is probably the most worst one was that when the NCAA took the basketball tournament away, yeah, you know, yeah, I remember <laughs> that. That, that was the one big one for me. I remember that because they made such a big deal about it. Right. Because, the, the, it's a religion in North Carolina. Right. College sports <laughs> are huge yeah. in the Carolinas. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, you know, AP Associated Press added it all up, you know, what they could find about those costs. And it was billions of dollars, almost $4 billion, just in a really short period of time that yeah. got diverted from North Carolina. And, you know, frankly, you know, most of the people who would be hurt by that are heterosexual cisgender people, not LGBT people, because we're a small group, you know. And we see companies continuing to speak out in many of these other places. I think it's hard for them to just write off, you know, entire chunks of the country to say, well, we'll never go there. But they are much more upfront about the fact that they will take these things into consideration when they make decisions, business decisions about moving in new facilities. And I've talked to some people who said, you know, some states has been powerful for some legislators. So, so those voices, I think, will, will still be there. And that threat, that threat of walking out, whether they're people or companies, can can make a big difference. Yeah. So maybe someday we will see Disney World in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> maybe in Colorado. Remember, Colorado used to be ground zero there, really. Yes, you know, it was. Yeah, yeah. we, li- we lived places. there. Yeah. 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 It, it was kind of funny. John and I did have to laugh when... Governor Polis? No, the, who the who was the politician from Texas that was saying, bring, bring bring Disney to Texas? And we were like, wait a second, are you not paying attention to what your own governor is doing? It was a, right it was a judge from Fort Bend, Texas, <laughs> who's making the case to Chappic to come to Fort Bend, Texas because of its diversity. And I was like, wow, that's very. These times are so confusing right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When Texas yeah. is the is the more liberal place in the <laughs> <like> country. <laughs> that is very strange. Yeah, yeah. So let's give listeners some some numbers. You spoke about in your book, and we you also there was a paper published in Science Direct about. The, I'm not probably not saying this right. The GIRLHO index, which is an eight point scale that measures how many points various countries have, and for every point they're lacking, they're, they're losing about $2,000 in GDP per capita is, you should just say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Please help us understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good though. That was good. So yeah, basically we were looking to see if com- countries, not just companies, but countries that are more inclusive of LGBT people have stronger economies. Cause that's the, that would be what we would expect to see if we didn't see that, that it would be hard to make, you know, to make the, broad economic case for equality. And that's, as you said, that's exactly what we found. We had this measure, we called it the Gill Row, is counting up different laws related to homosexuality. And we had a different one for trans issues. And then we just compared it to countries' GDP. We had, you know, rich countries and poor countries in there. We took into account lots of other differences in countries that matter for the economy. 
So we wanted to try to compare apples to, to apples. And we even included some measures of gender equality in there, you know, because sometimes people think, you know, maybe it's more that the countries are just more open to everybody. But, but even when we took all those different factors into account, we still saw big differences that, that, you know, one, having one more right was associated with a much higher GDP per capita, as you just mentioned. And I think after we controlled for everything, it was about $1,600 more. It doesn't mean that if a country went out and immediately passed another law that they would see a big jump in GDP, but it sets the stage for it, right? It sets the, it creates these conditions that we've been talking about that will allow them to be more fully utilizing who, who everybody is, who LGBT people are and what they have to contribute. What you were just saying kind of, it makes me think about the flight of knowledge mm-hmm. out of some of these countries. When more progressive, more liberal-minded folks and folks who are in the LGBT community decide to go outside of the country for their education. They come to places like the United States or they go to Europe and they go to some of these schools and they find a place for themselves there. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go back. They don't want to go back to those countries. And more often than not, they don't take that knowledge back. And so the brain drain that may be happening in some of these countries is, is, potentially one of the things that is holding these countries back from having that kind of GDP growth. Cause I mean, you just look at Silicon Valley and it's, there's just a slew of individuals who have come from other countries, come mm-hmm. to the United States, gotten their education and stayed there because they wanted to tap into the growth and the knowledge and the, the opportunity there. They didn't take it back with them. I think that's really important. And it's actually one of the things that's really hard to measure. So, you know, that will, that will get picked up in these broader comparisons of right. rights and GDP. It doesn't really get picked up in the estimates that, that I've done and that other people have done trying to quantify or put a monetary value on some of these other differences because we just can't really measure them very well. But right. I, yeah, I have no doubt that that's, that that's happening. Just as you said, you know, we just, we see a lot of people in these very, productive, innovative places who come from other countries. And, and that's great for our country. In my right, opinion, right. immigration has been a really great thing for our exactly. country, but it's not, a, it's not necessarily a great thing for the countries they've come from. Yeah. And you, asked, you mentioned this earlier in the episode, but you estimate that India lost about 1% of GDP or the opportunity to, to, to grow about a billion dollars because of homophobia and transphobia. That's huge. Have you had the opportunity to share this with anybody of influence in India? And what was the response? Yeah, well, it sort of made the round. So it, it was a paper that came out from the World Bank, and I think there has been discussion of it. I've spoken to different kinds of audiences of business people and university people in India, and I've seen it cited in articles, newspaper articles in the media there. I think it also got cited in the Supreme, one of the Supreme Court decisions. So, so people do know about it. And it's interesting. There have been other studies in other countries that come up with pretty similar kinds of numbers. Some yeah. the Caribbean countries, a recent study came out that have pretty similar numbers. South Africa, Philippines, Kenya, some Eastern European countries. So it's we're seeing very similar patterns in, in different in different places. And yeah, you know. Those numbers sometimes sound small, like 1% doesn't sound very big, but 
And as I mentioned in the book, I mean, that's like 1% of the global economy it would be the whole country, the whole economy of the Netherlands, yeah. you know, poof, there goes, you know, the Netherlands or Turkey, you know, that we would have lost, you know, there goes the Turkish economy. So, right. so these are, these are large and meaningful figures overall. Yeah, not not exactly what we're talking about, but I, ne- I never read these numbers before. But you you say that the U.S. government wasted between two hundred and ninety million to five hundred million between nineteen ninety three and twenty ten, discharging LGBTQ folks from military service. That's phenomenal to me. I don't know how that how that hasn't been broadcasted everywhere. That's just a waste of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it came up during that debate, but yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's just it's a great example. It's a very tangible example. You know training a fighter pilot and then dismissing them because they are, yeah. they're LGBT. Yeah. The person's or, not uh, cheap. You spend a lot of yeah, money on that. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. People that we need. That's right. That's right. So you share toward the end of your book, there is hope and opportunity. You share at the end of your book, a three-part plan to improve LGBT equality. One, we need more resources to mobilize, educate, and innovate. Two, we need more LGBT inclusive laws and policies. And three, we need more data on the lives of LGBT people in every country all over the world. To what extent do you think businesses should be included in that strategy? Well, they fit in everywhere on all three pieces of that. I think certainly, you know, some businesses have been supportive of LGBT communities and have supported them philanthropically. Some have have advocated in favor of good laws and policies and against the bad ones. And there are even a lot of country companies that are starting to collect data on LGBT people and are participating in other larger efforts to, to, to do something with that data. So I think they are there. I don't know that they think about it in exactly that way. You know, that this is kind of a, you know, a, a strategy that, that can move things forward, but, but there certainly are some. So, you know, there are coalitions of businesses. Here's one thing that I've learned is that businesses are more comfortable when they can work with other businesses on things, you know, because Mm -hmm. if there is going to be a backlash, you know, it's better that there's a bunch of companies to go after. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So they've, they've come together in groups like there's an organization called open for business. That's actually getting, making this economic case also and doing some of these studies and they are going into taking business people into countries to have quiet conversations with, with policymakers and, other important cultural figures. They went to the Vatican, for example, met with the Pope and people there. And so they have, you know, kind of been able to harness some of that collective energy to, to make all of the business, the whole business case look a little bigger and more important so the businesses can go make that case somewhere else. So I think we'll keep seeing that, you know, you know, Todd's, uh, Todd's years shop out leadership is doing a good job with, you know, reaching the people at the high level and, there are lots of other organizations at the state and uh, national levels that are trying to harness that business energy. So it's really, it's happening on all fronts. I think getting them to you know, convert it to, to other kinds of actions that are a little more external is really the challenge, but, but it's starting to happen. And you know, as you're speaking, maybe therein lies the opportunity for the LGBTQ BRGs and ERGs in various com- uh, companies, right? To your argument, maybe, maybe. I mean, I know we used to do this when we were at Schwab. We would network with other LGBT BRGs from other companies, but usually that was a happy hour. But maybe that can be maybe also happy hour, but also maybe a little bit more strategic about how can we get both mm-hmm. our companies to support or multiple companies simultaneously to support an initiative, a cause in our local area or at the state level. Yeah. yeah. I I think that there's a lot of expectation, you kind of maybe hinted at this, that there's a lot of expectation from LGBT folks when it comes to the philanthropic efforts that companies do. And maybe 
being a little bit more visible in what the other efforts that they're doing or putting some some more not just money but also voice behind some of the other things that they're doing can help to dispel some of the feelings of rainbow washing or pink washing right that it's not just we're going to throw a we're not going to just change our our logo to a rainbow during june we're not just going to sh- have a float going down the the uh, street at pride there are you know that's one of the things john and i point out capital one is the is one of the sponsors of our podcast and and just the the, the constant things that they're doing through in the throughout the community just has that's what proved to us that we wanted to to keep working with them and i think that that's what more companies need to do is to prove that it's not just we're giving money and we're doing a float granted it, it's a great start i read a we read john and i read a really good article a young i, I think he was filipino who oh, was harvard, a jur- article? harvard article yeah who just talked about the fact that when he was a kid and showed up and saw a billboard at a bus stop in new york city that was a company acknowledging their that they were a part of pride during the month of pride how that made him think about himself as a child as a queer kid before he even came out and 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 i think that the rainbows and the the work that that companies are doing in in a pride all of that is great but i think for some of that we do may, need to maybe take the conversation into other directions besides just the philanthropic and the rainbows yeah that's that is so important to 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 put those things together i mean that's companies are going to have to do that to convince people again of their you know of their sincerity and and it's going to make all of all of these things more likely to happen to kind of push forward both the 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 more human rights agenda as well as you know the practical everyday inclusion agenda that, that we all have i think so yeah i would love to see that happen yeah and i think it's important for our community to i know there's a, some you know sense of anti-capitalism sometimes but we have to it's yes. important to first remember as you mentioned in your book that if it wasn't for corporate support marriage equality probably wouldn't have happened in 2015 and also george bush attorneys <laughs> helped make that happen right so there's a topsy-turvy world so you know maybe we need to pick our battles a little bit more strategically and and try to get try to get corporations on our side more often than not and help them leverage the equality that we're all hoping to achieve. Yeah, there is that anti-capitalist strain, I would say, in the LGBT movement. And there's been a lot of pushback against corporate visibility and pride events and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I and some levels, I, I understand that because some of it is coming from some, you know, some doubts about how sincere companies are. And right. at the end of the day, they employ a lot of us. This is how we survive. Right. <laughs> you know, we want these places to be open to everybody, you know, the, yeah. to, to work, you know, and we want companies to be good citizens and be engaged in other kinds of things in a positive way. So, so it's, it's, it's hard for them to, to, to walk that type rope, I think, but, but, you know, we, we can do both those things. We can be critical of companies when they need, when we need to be, you know, whether it's about the environment or inequality and we need to be, you know, happy to see them do the right thing. So, Let's let's push them more towards doing the right thing. Exactly. We're concerned about global warming, but we're still flying to Mexico for our next vacation. <laughs> well, right? there's that. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of what you were just saying there. We were we went on a Janet Janet Jackson marathon yesterday, but it reminded me of the song where I can't remember which song it is, but one of the women says, 
but what has he done for you lately? And I guess that's kind of the question. That's we, the song, David. <laughs> what have you done for me? So lately? we need to ask ourselves, what are the companies doing? We cannot rest on just getting a, a 100 on the HRC index. They have to be showing us a little bit more. Lee, thank you so much for your time. We've thoroughly enjoyed this. We could probably go on for hours, but our listeners won't pay attention that long. <laughs> Where can our listeners track you down, follow you on social media, keep up with everything that you're creating? I'm on Twitter. Isn't everybody? Maybe not for long. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, so add Lee Badgett. I have a website where I post stuff pretty regularly and not exactly a blog, but you know, things that I'm working on, it's just www.leebadget.com. And I have some stuff on a new project I'm doing there on economic empowerment for LGBT people. So yeah, so I hope people keep up and keep in touch. Nice. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been really fun. I enjoyed it. Cool. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Wow. Thank you, Lee, for your time and the wealth of information that you shared with us and our listeners. We appreciate it. To you, our listeners, here's your primary takeaway from this episode. Consider the grassroots movements you can create in your own workplace. Many of us work for large corporations with LGBT business resource groups. And if used strategically and partnering with others, we can affect huge change. Exactly. Finally, subscribe to the email list in your podcast player for your chance to win a free copy of Lee's book, The Economic Case for LGBT Equality. Then join us next week for another episode of Queer Money. Thank you and have a great week. <laughs>